Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing the good, the bad, and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who've done some amazing things in policing. And I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works, or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised, as some of the topics can be distressing, and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hello everybody, hope you're well. Ian here. Welcome to episode 54 of the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. This week I'm going to get pretty much straight into the interview. It's a cracker this week. Well, I think it's always a cracker, isn't it? But um, this week I'm interviewing Jackie Moulton, the amazing, wonderful Jackie Moulton. I really, really enjoyed talking to her. Well, that makes it sound as if I don't enjoy talking to any of the others, which I do. But you know, occasionally a guest comes along that is really special and Jackie is definitely one of those. So she has literally just had uh, her book published and her book is The Real Prime Suspect From the Beat to Screen, My Life as a Female Detective, which was published, drumroll, yesterday. And it is now number one bestseller in the emergency services which um, I think my book was number one bestseller in the emergency services when it was first published. I think that's because lots of people pre-order it and then the algorithm goes a bit crazy, but that makes it sound as if I'm expecting Jackie's book to fall from number one. Uh, I'm sure it won't. I'm sure it's going to stay there for a long time. So for those who don't know anything about Jackie, Jackie was the character upon whom Linda LaPlante uh, based the Helen Mirren character in the TV drama Prime Suspect. And the character in that series of dramas uh, was DCI Jane Tennyson, as I'm sure many of you will remember. Those of you of tender years may be unfamiliar with that series. If you are, I would so recommend you try and find it, whether that's on, I don't know, iPlayer maybe, Netflix, Amazon Prime, one of those, you'll find it somewhere. Uh, really brilliant stuff, um, gripping drama, one of the very few that I've ever watched as a serving police officer and thought, yeah, this is pretty much, pretty much bang on really. And that's largely thanks to the cooperation uh, between Linda LaPlante, the writer, and Jackie. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. You are. <laughs> right. How are you? You're right. Good, yeah. I just finished reading your book, by the way. Love you. Flipping heck, bless you. And what did you? Very what good. do you reckon? Did you enjoy it? I can identify with every word. 
It's always, uh, it's always together. Yeah, no, it's always... I can. I, can. It, I think, you know, it must be the same. You see, you're, you're younger than me, but, you know, what's quite surprising is that nothing much has changed, even though you're younger. You just kind of think, blimey, I can identify with all of it. Yeah, yeah. It's a weird one, isn't it? I mean, I think there's probably a lot, a lot about the police that stayed um, changed, but a lot of things that stayed the same. And I, I dare say... If you were to join now, you'd probably there'd probably be a lot of those issues. I suspect would probably be very similar. But um, but yeah. So anyway, listen. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Bless you. Is this the first podcast you've done, or are you a bit of an old hand at this? Old hand. Oh yeah, you've done loads. Of you. oh. Actually, I've just done one in Lancashire for um, Dave Thomas, the Mindful Life. I think it is. Yeah. So I've just done one this weekend. Um, do you know him? Uh, I don't actually know. Is he is he a policey kind of person? He's, yeah, he's he 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 did blogs. At, it's not a competition, but he started before you did. <laughs> okay, that's all right. Uh, I've done uh, with who's the historian Lucy Worsley. All right, okay. Yeah, I've just done one with her on Victorian serial killers, etc. I've done I've done those. We did lots for the real prime suspect. All right, brilliant. So I've done I've done one for the BBC, lots of them. Flipping X. So you could probably teach me a thing or two. Oh, I couldn't teach you about it, but it is the way that people are communicating yeah, yeah. or hearing people through podcasts. So it's quite a popular um, media. Oh, it's very liberating. It's very yeah. liberating. I find it incredibly liberating that the fact that um, you know you can say exactly what you want, and there's no one wagging their finger at you. And if they do wag their finger at you, I don't actually give a shit, you know. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, you're um, a really interesting character, aren't you? In the sense that you know the, the stuff you've done is brilliant. I'm really looking forward to getting into uh, the detail of it and and everything so for those um listening to this who don't know who you are um correct me if i'm wrong here you are the female detective upon whom the fictional character jane tennyson of the prime suspect very successful prime suspect uh, crime dramas were based on isn't that right correct yeah excellent look at that check me so um so yeah so let's talk about there's various things i want to talk about um let's talk talk about your career um highs and lows things you love things you hated and uh and then we can talk about um you know your life after policing because you've done so much after policing and then i'd be really interested in hearing your thoughts on where policing is at the moment Mm -hmm. uh where you what your observations are what your suggestions for improvement etc cetera, etc cetera. so so yes yeah, so we break it down into those kind of three subcategories if that doesn't sound too poncy to say that no that's fine so uh so yeah so uh when did you join the the police i nearly called you jane there jackie <laughs> <laughs> No, I so I joined the uh, police cadets in uh, Leicestershire, Leicester and Rutland, as it was known then, in 1969, and I joined uh, the regular police in 1970. 
Bloody hell. So that was that's 52 years ago. That's probably it makes you feel so old. So old. old school. So when you joined the cadets, I was four. <laughs> <There you go>. <laughs> <laughs> make you feel just to make you feel better. And I'm 56 <laughs> now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember I remember being in the police canteen and saying things like that to police old hats. You know, when we first joined, uh you couldn't sit in certain seats in the canteen because uh, people had that that particular commandeered that particular seat, and you wouldn't dare. Some old sweat had got that seat. Yeah. You wouldn't dare kind of um, sit in it. And I remember saying, "Oh, when did you join the police?" And they said, so, "And I said, oh, yeah, I was about four then." Mm-hmm. And uh, and and now kind of. Life moves on, and now people are saying to me when I join the police, you know, that's evolution, isn't it? And aging, I've got less life, le- less years in front of me than behind me, yeah. and that's the way the you know the cookie crumbles. That's but you've got to keep going, Ian. You've got yeah. to keep going. Definitely, Never yeah, definitely. Occasionally, I kind of uh, you know, you reach a certain point in your life, don't you, where you start feeling a bit gloomy about your age and uh, the fact that uh, you know you're not going to get any younger. Yeah. Uh, bits of you are now aching doing things that didn't cause them to ache before and all of that and you have to wear your bloody glasses to fucking find anything you know what I mean all of that kind of stuff um but uh yeah there's nothing you can do about it is there not one bloody thing you can do no, about but all what, I think what you can do actually is you take responsibility for yourself so um I, I feel a bit you know what if I do have to have any kind of treatments and they give you a long list don't they of ailments and and I think no 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 I can go through that list and say no I haven't had any of those and I'm not suffering from anything and I don't have to take medication and I keep myself fit and I do sports and I have a structured day and I have hobbies and friends and family and so I take it upon myself to keep myself um, as fit and active and yeah. still curious I'm very curious still that has never ever left me very very curious person yeah, I'm exactly. interested in the human psyche and I just kind of keep going and I wake up and I feel fit as a fiddle I've had a knee replacement I've had two cataract operations and if anything starts to go a bit wobbly I'll get it mended yeah no you do you look great you look great and um you know I mean when you when you sort of say that you joined in 1970 I think oh my god <laughs> I'm looking as good as you whenever I'm here. Um, you joined uh, Leicestershire. So, did you have any family in the police at all? What was it? What was it that propelled? Yeah. The well, there's. Um, I, I I don't know. I don't know why. You know, like kids are interested in things when they're younger, aren't they? And they kind of carry on. And when they're adults, they kind of with the interest that they had the darkness and uh, which was completely antithesis to my own life of course but I was interested in why people do the things that they did and hence was my interest in joining the police and that that never left me why people behaved in the way that they did yeah 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 no it's it is it's fascinating and if anyone who's a student of human behavior couldn't do better than to join the police because bloody hell you don't have to see some stuff do you um so so yeah so you're in Leicestershire um and how long did you stay there um so I transferred to the Met in 1979 
Okay, all right. So that for quite a while then, weren't you? Nine nine yeah. years. So let's talk about that a bit then. So what? I mean, I don't imagine there would have been um, a thousand um, kind of female officers back in those days, and even Leicestershire. Were you were you quite unusual, or were there? Oh no, no, no. You you see, because you're so young, uh, <laughs> you you you're post sexual discrimination act. So I'm pre sexual discrimination act, which was in 1975. So the policemen that operated were in a separate department to the men. It was um, police women's department, later called the special inquiry unit. And what that department did. Um, was that they dealt with issues around women and children and any uh, incident where a male officer needed a female officer, you would get called upon. So there were many inquiries and stuff to deal with women per se on their own and women and children. We had a great knowledge of the local families. We had a great knowledge of uh, children getting into difficulties, you know, criminality. And uh, and, and, and in any downtime, if you like, um, there are occasions where uh, there might be surplus officers, then you would be given the beat. And I always picked the, I was given the Highfields area of Leicester, which was um, where the street workers uh, operated from. It was um, not very far from the city centre. Mm -hmm. And I loved it. Victorian houses, terraced houses, a uh, great area of diversity um, that was settling in into that area street workers were operating it was really really rich right so so, so given I'll, given given the fact that you were sort of your role was slightly different did you did you still sort of dress and kind of dress in the same way and patrol in the same way as male officers well, well dress you couldn't wear trousers those you just wore a skirt you had a handbag you weren't given the trunch and you got handcuffs i think and um uh, and the radio yeah so that was kind of it was kind of quite simpler but it was very similar but you made the most of it of, of the patch that you were in so that mm. was you know meeting people chatting to people getting informants I had loads of informants as a young uniformed officer loads mm. and they were mainly um street workers sex workers to be probably right. we called them prostitutes back in 1970 and uh, now known as sex workers and they were a phenomenal group of women you know very very helpful so for example mm. you know we would deal with kids missing from home and um so uh you'd say they'd say to you uh, drive around the block jackie come back in half an hour i'll have them with me and uh not all, not in every case, but a lot of the cases that some of the kids would end up there. And um, and they, I used to say to them, you know, that's great. And thank you very much. And they used to say, I don't want, I don't want this to happen. What happened to me to happen to this young girl? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, they, they were. So just on, just on that one. Just Sorry? on that one, just on that one, it's an interesting one because uh, so obviously the the street workers today, well, it's generally sort of um, you know the sex sexual sort of services are being provided for behind closed doors now on the basis of sort of internet. Um, so obviously street um, prostitution, so to speak, isn't as prevalent today as it was even probably ten years ago. But but obviously the stereotype for someone involved in the sex industry, um, particularly street girls, what was drugs really. There was a very strong link, as you know, between drug addiction and um, selling um, sex. In those days, obviously the drug issues weren't as 
significant as they are today. So what was it that was propelling women into the sex industry in the days that you're describing? Was it drugs money. or was it money? Yeah, and 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 um, most of them had a, um, what's the word? Uh, what's the word uh, where they're put out on the streets by the guy? Oh, right, they'd have a pimp, somebody who was pimp, right. but so right. most, most of the women that I knew had a pimp. Right. And they were um, they were working for the pimp. Right, so it was a sort of coercive kind of relationship then. Coercive relationship, yeah. Right, okay. I just thought it was interesting. So, all right, okay. So how were you treated by male officers in those days? Well, it wasn't just, I don't, you see, I always have to put this in context, Ian, because people talk about the police as if they are aliens from another planet mm. and uh, in terms of their behaviour. And when you look in context, most women did not work in that era that I was growing up. So you're now, in, say, in the 1970s. Uh, the Sexual Discrimination Act hadn't come out. Equal opportunities hadn't come out. And it was a cultural thing right across the board. So I don't care whether who you work for, whether you were police or whatever profession that you might be in, that's where women were in society. And you have to reflect that in terms of, you know, when you're talking about the police. We're not a group of aliens that come down and treat women in a way that is mm. uh, different to the rest of society. It was where society was and where women were and the attitudes by men to women in society. And, I'm, 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 and it's something that they then learned experiences themselves that they were brought up with. I'm not making excuses for them, yeah, by yeah. the way, but what I'm saying is these are the facts of what mm. happened. Mm. And this is um, something that probably if they look back themselves, they'd be appalled at their own learned behaviours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, did you experience um, anything that was sort of went beyond just sexist behaviour and straight into sort of almost abusive or even well i talk about a bit criminal behavior no no i talk about it well i talk about it in my book so what what happened also this i i um years later i uh, made a program called women in blue for radio four and i spoke to many many police officers from my era and later than my era one of the most common occurrences that women detectives face was having your backside stamped with a cid stamp mm. Uh, and that was your inauguration into the CID. That was a very, very common occurrence. Mm. Many other things, you know, like sexes make the tea, do that, do that, in well, whatever um, terminology they wanted to call you, plonk or Doris or peewee or mm. derogatory term that it was. Because many didn't, many, some of the men didn't feel that the police was the, a right job for a woman to have in any event. So, mm. um, yeah. The, the worst thing, I think, is was having a backside stamp. Mm. They got me twice on late turn. And I was a detective sergeant by then. I wasn't some, you know... Probationer. Probationer. Yeah, I, yeah, and yeah. even if I was a probationer, they'd get, they'd get me... <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> right, just no, to carry by No, that. No, you see, I it's one of those things I... I mean, I joined in 89, so like eons after you joined, but, um, you know, it's one of those things you'd hear about, but I never actually saw what happened genuinely. I never saw what happened. I think that was probably probably been phased out by the time I came along even even 1989 that would have been deemed to be wrong you know um so what was it that made you decide to go to London then 
Well, I was uh, a sergeant with two, uh, three years service, and then um, I passed the inspector's exam. So I was pushing, pushing, pushing a little bit, and I was an acting inspector. I'd been in drug squad, I'd been in traffic, I'd been um, CID. I was now an acting inspector, and I played hockey with the police, and all mm. these girls, women, came up from the Metropolitan Police and they were great fun. And obviously, my sexuality was gay. Look, they met loads mm. of gay women from there. And they said, Oh, come down there, Met Jackie. It'd be great. Far yeah. better than where you are now. And I felt um, Lester was getting a bit insular and stuff. So I spoke to a senior officer and he said, You know, they don't know what to do with you. By then, the Sexual Discrimination Act had come out. But he said, There were many women who wanted to stay within the same police women's department. They didn't, they didn't really want to integrate. Some did, some didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, due respect to them, it's everybody has their choices of what they wanted to do. I wanted to be fully integrated. Yeah. And so I said, well, I've got a chance to go down the Metropolitan Police. He said, take it, go for it. So I applied to the Met. Mm-hmm. They kept my rank. I was um sergeant. So then they put me uh, into uniform for about 18 months, I think it was. And it's a whole – well, you in your book, you transferred forces didn't you so did, yeah. you know what that transfer process is so yeah, some it's pretty, it's pretty painful alien. isn't it <laughs> some of it's quite alien metropolitan police is completely alien because it has the general standing orders policies that were completely different from you know provincial forces the other thing was the pure volume of work in the met the degree or the severity of the offenses that were committed by what rank you know i was the detective sergeant on the flying squad dealing with massive armed robberies Whereas in probably in a provincial force, it might be a DI or a DCI. So yeah. there's lots of learning, pushing your comfort zone. I had a uniform inspector that was brilliant. And he said, I'll teach you to dot every I, cross every T, you know, buy the book. And then when you when you have it and you feel comfortable, if you wanted to take any shortcuts, I mean, yeah. legal shortcuts, you know what I mean? I know, yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and, and I was grateful for that teaching. Yeah. And then I uh, got back in CID. Where did you Where did you go uh, during that sort of eighteen month period in uniform? Which Where was you for? Where did you land, so to speak, in the Met? Oh, so um, I, I I had a very easy posting to a place called Richmond. Richmond, oh my goodness! It's lots a, of lots of wealth, Richmond. lots of wealthy people, and uh, yes, not, you know, law abiding generally, kind of. Well, you say that. You see, I mean, in essence, it is, but you have to think of the location. The The location mm. is bang on the River Thames, mm. and it had some fantastic pubs, and the people would come from all over to Richmond to sit yeah. by the river, to drink in the pubs, and there on Richmond, every virtually every night of the week, there was violence from different groups. Mm. Mm. So it was a quite uh, um, a heavy drinking place. Yeah. Where people couldn't take their drink, and then you know, I got I got my head kicked in in uh, Richmond, uh, badly assaulted. Well, I say badly assaulted. You know, well, got my head kicked in in any event, mm. and um, mm. it was quite volatile with people who had consumed too much drink, and people would regularly jump off the bridges into the river on a hot day and lose their life. And mm, you know, it, it, it in many ways it can be posh, but it, it, there's another yeah. part of Richmond. It's quite an eccentric type of place and yeah. also you know you're next door to Twickenham with all the rugby yeah. so it wasn't a piece of cake Ian as you're trying to <laughs> insinuate 
not at all. It's just I used to live uh, not that far away from there when I was in the Met, and um, I used to cycle to Richmond along the river, um, which was lovely. Um, and then I would jump on the district line at Richmond to go into Scotland Yard, um, St James's Park, and um, yeah, I mean it's very green and very leafy, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's green and leafy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like everywhere, it's going to have its moments, isn't it? But um, so you went, uh, you went into CID after that. Was that in Richmond, or did you go somewhere else? No, then I went to Tooting. Oh, that's a bit, um, bit more. Uh, and a little. And I, was, uh, I was only there for three months. There was a little substation. There was Tooting Earlsford. It was on W Division Battersea. Mm -hmm. And then I went seconded to the New Cross Fire. In I went in October. 80, I was seconded to the New Cross Fire in South East London in 1981, and I never went back to that part of London. Uh, oh, nice. So I ended up working a lot in South East London after that. So I went right. to New Cross Fire right, okay. um, and investigated that. And what, was, what was the cause of that one? I know vaguely about it. What, what, what happened there? Well, there was a fire that was uh, caused internally. Um, there was lots of uh, there's still belief, huge belief in uh, Upper Caribbean uh, communities that it was a racist attack from the outside. There's no forensic evidence to um, substantiate that. But it there was mm. huge um, mistrust mm. um, probably on both sides. Yeah. Now, I, I was fortunate uh, when I went there uh, We've got 13 young black children, teenagers, a couple of adults who have died in a house fire. It is horrific. Mm. I was fortunate to work with a man called Commander Graham Stockwell, um, who was a commander Area 4 CID, and his uh, detective chief superintendent and superintendent, fantastic team. And he said, we will... Uh, this was. This is going to be a difficult investigation. Uh, um, these are the uh, your behaviour codes. This is mm. how you will dress. This is how you'll behave. You will cross every T and dot every I. And because at the end of the day, when there's an inquest down the line, there will be obviously by then the new cross massacre action group had been formed, talking about racism and that we were covering up a racist attack. It was very very political. So I was very grateful to have that leadership um, direction from somebody that, you know, I, I learned, I grew very much to respect. Yes. And uh, I can honestly say, I mean, it's very sad, in, Ian, you know, that we went to work every day. We worked hugely, hugely long hours, huge mm. long hours. And it was always very, very sad where the uh, kind of allegations that you didn't do enough and mm. you were biased and you had um, racial bias. Yeah, the whole thing, uh, it's just worth just pausing and thinking about this a little bit, you know, and it's such an unbelievably sort of difficult comment to become such an unbelievably difficult subject to discuss. And I talk quite a lot about that in my book. You know, I devote sort of a whole chapter to it that, that I know I know with every breath in my body that the Metropolitan Police is not an endemically racist organization. 
I will endorse that. I will endorse that. And, and I also, I also know, and I will defend this till my dying day, that the British Police Service are not uh, a sort of institutionally or endemically racist organisation. You know, and that's not to say that there aren't individuals with unacceptable views in the organisation, as there is in every organisation. But I just don't know. I mean, here we are. So that was that instant you're describing was what 1980 or whatever. 81. 81. And here we are in, you know, August 2022. And we have a ridiculous situation where this athlete has been stopped on the A40, having failed to stop after three or four miles or whatever. And and the, this allegation of racial, racial profiling just keeps on getting thrown in the face of policing. And that's set against a backdrop of a of an epidemic of gang, an urban street gang related stabbings and murders of children um, within that are overly overly represented by young black men in that as both victims and perpetrators. Yeah. So I I just don't know what the police have to do to strike that balance between on one hand enforcing the law and on the other hand being seen to be fair and reasonable towards the black community. I mean, what are your thoughts on all of this? I just don't, I just think it's beginning well, to be impossible. I had, um, I was listening to a programme yesterday on LBC and I was quite appalled uh, by um, some of the comments that were phoning through and, and the presenter, to be perfectly honest. And um, so I looked at the video uh, myself uh, this morning, funny enough, and to see that uh, he, he, please, he he was straggling the middle lane because he mm. has a camera on, straggling the middle lane on the A40, um, and the police car comes in front of him, puts on his lights, and he immediately pulls out and overtakes. Now, <laughs> I'm a police officer, you're a police officer. Uh, mm. That would be hugely suspicious, and yeah. uh, I'm, I'm not going to drive off and think, oh, I'll just leave it. You're going, to, you're going to stop it. So he was stopped front and back. The officer came out. Um, it said that he came out with a baton. He didn't. He approached the car, the man, the, obviously some communication. Then he pulled his pulled his baton in his hand. He just had it. And I have to agree with you. And now um, the gentleman's appearing, saying that he was racially stereotyped and stuff. It was believed he was on the mobile phone. Um, I, I, I just felt sorry for those I feel sorry for the police officers. So that every mm. time you do something, then this same argument, mm. you know, comes out, and mm. um, it hasn't gone away from the deputy fire either. But it's probably got from the new cross fire in eighty one. You know, the, of of racism. And in fairness, in fairness to the new cross fire, uh, there were there were racist attacks. There were other buildings caught on fire. So I know. That it was mm. in context with what they what they were saying. In fairness to them, there mm -hmm. was mistrust. There had been racial attacks, uh, racist attacks on buildings set fire. So I can understand where where they're coming from. But um, I didn't understand this particular case. But it's difficult to judge because I'm sure it will be referred to the IOPC. Mm. But, yeah, you know, I think yeah. it. I think it has been. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just don't know. I don't know. I just genuinely do not know what the answer is. And I, I look at, you know, Mark Riley, who's come in as the new commissioner and um, and um, Lynn Owens as his deputy. I mean, fantastic, fantastic, well-respected top top team there. Um, but I 
don't think that anyone can, it doesn't matter almost what you do now, I think that allegation is going to continue to be thrown in the face of policing. Yeah, well, you've interfered policing with politics. And, you know, to be fair to Cressida, she she, she uh, was a phenomenal leader in, in many ways. I've known her for 40 years. Now, Mark Rowley and, and Lynn are fantastic fantastic double act team that would be absolutely brilliant but I don't believe that anybody can police London on their own that they should have some form of set of advisors around them I think I'm sure they probably do anyway but Mm. where you have uh, a Labour mayor and you have a Conservative uh, Home Secretary and government those two things are going to be clash you have political interference constantly with the police now which we didn't have before um, and it's quite interesting in all of these attacks on the police of late about detection rates, which are abysmally poor. Yeah. I have to give you that. But again, we have to put that in context. You know, nobody's, nobody in government seems to mention the police and crime commissioners. What role they have, where yeah. they hold the chief constable accountable. Well, who holds them accountable and what yeah. role are they playing? And not one word. Not one word. I know. Well, this is because a police and crime commissioner, majority of whom are Tories. I know. Once you once once you put political um, interference into policing, you've had it. And the other thing is, whilst you got me on a a rant, (laughs) is that in nineteen ever since I joined in nineteen seventy two, the government have issued objectives to the police for short term. Short-term objectives for long-term problems. Yeah. So within that, you, you never, because it is all about partnership, it is working with others. I was on a committee in 1984 exploring parenthood, working with young um, single black women in Notting Hill with this fantastic charity, looking for funding, looking for where these women could identify, where they could support each other. Was there any funding from government? Zero. Hmm. And... Um, it, it just kind of appalls me with this political hmm. intervention. Police yeah. and crime commissioners, um, they drive me nuts. Yeah. Well, I think John Sutherland, who you'll know, I'm sure, um, made a very good point saying it makes complete sense to blame the police for every bad thing that's going on at the moment because it means that politicians don't actually fundamentally have to do anything yeah. about, about about the causes of all of those problems. Well, look at all the causes, you know, within the cuts, within mental health. You know, you're on Twitter, I'm on Twitter. You can just mm. read all the comments of police officers tied up mm. uh, with mental health patients in hospital. Not their job. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. And it yeah. seems that these are a dumping ground for yeah. all the ills for social services or for society's problems. Yeah. You know, 24-7 um, emergency and everything gets dumped on the police. So when you've got I think on Twitter the other day, out of eight officers, there were six tied up with people mm. with people suffering from mental health. Now, that's mm. very sad that we have got these issues around mental health. Yeah. And then the detection rate's low, and then yeah. the police response is low. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's interesting, uh, you know, Andy Cook, uh, the Chief Inspector of Constabulary, yeah. came out the other day and basically said, right, you've got till March next year to pull your socks up around detections. And... Um, <sighs> You know, and that's I think I think what he's doing is quite clever, actually, because he's forcing the issue. He's, he's forcing uh, in, a, in a very clever way. Um, he's shining a spotlight on on this issue that I think most members of the public would expect to be the priority of the police. 
and it's going to force the police to start making some difficult choices about what they do and how they spend their time. And, you know, for every minute that they spend on a constant watch of someone in a cell block uh, who's suffering from mental health issues or stuck in, in a hospital, hospital or whatever, hospital. yeah, yeah, or responding to all of these bloody crises, mental health crises of people's private dwellings, all of that, every minute that they're doing that is a minute that they're not dealing with victims of crime. So I do think, uh, yeah, I'm really interested to see how this is going to play out, but but yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll tell you something else as well. This is not right or wrong on either. I'm not. I'm not arguing one or, or the other. So just bear with me. But when uh, when in the job, there was very little understanding of uh, domestic violence, coercive control, safeguarding, offences, grooming, modern slavery. In fact, we didn't really have modern slavery, I don't suppose. But in uh, but we definitely had grooming. I think mm, mm. and. Um, and the way that the police have responded to that over the years has grown and developed and is much more responsive. Now, when we when we didn't really understand all of those issues, our acquisitive crime rates were quite high. Mm. I ran detection rates, uh, Hammersmith, burglary and robbery, 25%. Mm. Very, very high detection rates because I had dedicated burglary teams, I had dedicated robbery teams, I had young crime squads that apprentice DCs, da 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 and, mm. you know, we had fantastic crime results because my chief superintendent would have a vice-like grip over Hammersmith, for example, mm. and, you know, he wanted results and we wanted results. And yet now it seems that acquisitive crime down the detection rate is very low and the demands of policing are much more on safeguarding offences. Now, yeah. one's not right or wrong, but you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%, How you respond yeah. to it, you haven't yeah. got a yeah. total response that yeah. says we're going to do this right and we're going to do that right. You haven't yeah, got yeah. No, well, you've you've only got you're you're only ever going to have twenty four hours in a day. You're only going to have the, the, the number of officers that, or members of police staff that you've got. Um, so it's about cutting. It's how you decide to cut that cake, isn't it? And um, and I do think uh, you know, given that I had a background as well as in child protection as well as counterterrorism and all those things. You know, I, I completely get the whole safeguarding thing. And, and I do remember very well, you know, when I was a DI in the child protection team in Birmingham, us, us identifying this issue that was that is now to, known by everyone as CSE, child sexual exploitation, um, in all the children's homes in Birmingham and, and coming up against this kind of brick wall of, of denial, really, at a, a senior level, because they could see that, uh, you know, they would say, well, this is just out of control teenage girls prostitute that was the word used prostituting themselves um you know no understanding whatsoever and, and even to be fair and i've admitted this in the book even initially i was a bit skeptical about it all thinking well hold on we've got shitloads of referrals about kids being you know physically and sexually abused where the hell are we going to get the resources to do all of this you know um but the, be absolutely right but the point is that We've gone, I think we've gone too far down that road around the safeguarding world now to the detriment of, um, you know, other crime types that equally deserve to be, you know, focused. Well, you say too far down the road, but who's going to who's going to measure the cutoff point? I think mm. everything is important. Everything is important. But you see, when you go back to that, um, you know, safeguarding, there was a, a DCI from Thames Valley in Oxford, I can't remember his name, but he really thought a bit differently. And what he did was because we understood, we both worked with these young girls before and their 
that, that they often from chaotic uh, lives and um you know and they can be you know up and down and yeah. tired one day not the and we know that they're very difficult to handle hmm. that shouldn't make the slightest bit of difference but what he then did was target the offenders first hmm. so he put on surveillance teams he targeted the offenders he built up the intelligence then he went back to the girls and said we know what this team are doing. Can you support us? And it worked that way, mm, as opposed mm. to going to the young girls first. Yeah, and then yeah. Oh, yeah, they'll they'll tell you nothing, and certainly yeah, so. exactly. So they, uh, yeah, but but the I'm sure that I don't know how what the answer is because I don't know the, the, mm. the numbers or whatever it is. Yeah. But what I worry about in the metropolitan police, um, and I'm sure. You know, they'll say, what's that old Doris going on? She left the job years ago, which is absolutely right. So whoever's listening and thinks I'm an old Doris, you're absolutely right. <laughs> but I am a member of the public. And what you can see, for example, are these huge, and on Twitter, you've got police officers queuing up to book in somebody in the custody suite miles away from their station. Yeah. So you've lost all the police stations. That mm. Everyone I served at is gone except for Hammersmith. Mm. Um you have lost contact with the public. You have lost your intelligence hubs. You have lost uh, the um, you've lost the canteen. That was really really important because it's not yep. all about canteen culture. It's not all negative. Mm. And so there were many things communicating somewhere a sense of belonging where police belong, the public belong. They could go, and you knew you mm. knew who the you know who your local kind of villains were, yep. etc. Custody sweep bring into the custody sweep. Da 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 da. And you had those um, local intelligence officers mm. that knew everything about everything. Yeah. But that's a oh, legacy. That's a leg- that's a legacy of Theresa May, though, isn't it? You know, I mean, all yeah. of those police stations were closed as a result of her cuts. That 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 just went way, way, way too far. And we were cut, uh, you know, to a much greater extent than any other public service during that period. So, you know, all of these things are going to take a, a long, long time to put right. And you, you know, you know what needs to be done. You've just said it. I know what needs to be done. Um, but it, it is, unfortunately, about resources. And, it, and it's about bringing that um, all of those 25,000 members of police staff back as well, because they did, as you know, vital work behind the scenes to do stuff that was largely unseen by the public, but which when you take that away, um, you um, create massive gaps, massive gaps in the organisation capability, you know. But anyway, listen, we could talk about all of this all day long, um, but this is about you. So let's get back to you again in terms of your your career. So um, so we left off when you were, um, you went to the New Cross investigation. Yeah, um, so after, shortly after that, well, not sure, yeah, so that was in the January. So in the April, Commander Stockwell, again, Commander Area 4, uh, the Brixton riots kicked off and we're seconded then because uh, the, it, the coroner asked for an inquest way, way, way ahead of time for the Deptford, for the New Cross fire, way ahead. The, um, and so uh, we we plead with him, the commander sort of pleads with him and say, we're not ready, we're not ready. So he says, no, 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 we, we need an inquest. Later criticised by a second inquest in 2004. Nevertheless, go to Brixton Riots and I'm on the investigation team of the crimes that were committed in the um, during the Brixton Riots. Mm. 
So that's that's my job. I'm based in um, Kennington, which was the mm. police station that was where all the CID or the CID teams were pushed in mm. to investigate mm. the uh, crimes committed, which was all sorts, you can imagine. Mm. Yeah, so you've gone from one highly politicised... Um... To another. <laughs> <laughs> to another. And um, in all the, race, the racial tension that, that's... that's Kind of going on as a result of the Brixton riots, and and then um, a little boy goes missing on Royal Wedding Day. A little boy is eight years of age, called Vishal Mahotra, and he goes missing from uh, near Putney. Mm. So I'm a, I, on on paper, I'm still what they call a W officer, W mm. division officer. So mm. uh, I get dragged, not dragged. I get told. Take that out. I don't mean that. So I'm no, on the Brixton right. So then I then um, I've done all my. I've done. Um, I think I had. Uh, I was given. Uh, I my investigations were my legal aid reports, but virtually all done. And so I was free enough to go at that point over uh, to Putney, and I was on an investigation for the little boy that was missing, and he was found dead in Sussex. Right. Uh, six months later, in the February, when Sussex mm. police investigated. Nevertheless, I have to say to you that I have never lost contact with the family. I would really? be what they would have called an FLO, but un, kind of untrained FLO. We didn't know, we didn't have the term FLO, but that was my job. So I had great relationships. Uh, and was that a uh, was that a, a sexually motivated crime, or was it a, was there more to it? Was it kind of a, a, a what was the motive for the murder? Well, we, because he was skeleton, was found. We don't know, but we can surmise that it was sexual. Right. So I was in a meeting yesterday uh, with a BBC journalist and um, and another detective inspector, and we uh, are still pursuing this investigation ourselves. Um, I know Sussex Police will say it's a live investigation, but uh, all right. So no one was ever brought to justice no. for it. It was found in Sussex. Skeleton was found uh, in a copse, not far from where I live, really. And um, so we are pursuing it, and we're carrying on. And oh, um, bless you. we will present what we get. We've got, which I think is highly valuable. It's very uh, sad, isn't it? It's very sad for the family. Um, you know, the father is like mid seventies now. You know, I see, I saw him last week. Uh, his, um, his son, he married again. Mm -hmm. It's a very long story, but it's very, very sad. So, and then I was uh, so. He, then I was um, brought into my DCI, and he said, "Who do you know on the Brian squad?" So I said, well, I don't know anybody. But by then, Commander Stockwell had gone to the flying squad, which your ex met, so you would know that there mm. were kind of four officers around the MPS, and I was yeah, I was posted to Rotherhowes in southeast right. London, which then later became we moved to Tower So it's all southeast London, southeast Blackers, southeast yeah. London. So working yeah. with a bunch of geezers then? All men. <laughs> Were you the only female officer? Yeah. Really? So when I go, I've, I've been given a detective sergeant um, as my partner. I'm a detective sergeant. It's a little bit like the Sweeney, so you're given the car for the driver. Mm. And 
um, the DI said, well, I'll introduce you to your partner. And so he took me across to the pub, actually, for some reason. I don't know why. It was about 12 noon, and this big strapping guy came in. He's about six foot three. No, it's bent like that. It's from Cheshire. Mm, yeah. uh, so I said, oh, how do you do? Pleased to meet you. Um, he said, why don't you fuck off, you cunt? No way. Said, I'm telling you. He said, why don't you fuck off, you cunt? He said, I'm not working with a woman. And stormed out. So, so who was, he was it? Was he a DC? Was he? DS. Both DS. Yes. Oh my god. We were both DSs. If it's a DC, he's people that touch the floor. What he a charm. So then he would say things like, um, right, you know, the first week. Because, like, if you think about it, two years before. I'm a provincial officer, and then two years later, I'm in the flying squad. You know, you know what I mean? It's, it's, like it's mad, big, isn't it? Big step. <laughs> it is like it's about but, as different as it's yeah. about as different as two things could possibly be. It's it? not well. I mean, we had worked relentless hours. We never went home. I'd never gone home for months and months. Hmm. Uh, on the, the new cross fire, the Brixton riots, a little boy missing. You just work relentlessly. You know what it's like. Hmm. And um, he. Respected me, I think, and um, commanded start well. Anyway, so I'm the only woman in this office. So he said, like, do you want to do, um, he said, right, come in on whatever day it was, Friday, was going to do a recce, you know, on the blagger. I said, okay, then. So he said, oh, well, we'll start the recce at six. So I said, okay. Now I live southwest London. Hmm. I'm in southeast. So you get up at four, be at the office at six. No show. No uh... show. So he come in at nine o'clock, and I said, I thought we were supposed to meet at six. Where have you been? He said, tough shit. We'll do it again. Whatever. So just till he... So then he did it again, and then I worked with him for about, I thought, what are you going to do with this guy? So about, I think I could last about six months with him. And then mm. in the end, I went to my DC. I said, I can't work with this idiot. I just can't work with him. And he swapped. Put me on a different car, and life was much, much easier after that. But a few, I get DI, I go to Western Central, come back to that. But I go to Stockwell, then says you need to go to Fordswood on your CV. I said, No, it's not really my bag. So then uh, have it on your CV if you go for cheap, which he was right about. So I said to him, Okay, I respect you, I'll go. Anyway, the fraud squad is massive. Do you know where it was at Hoburn? Massive, massive. Yeah, yeah. Kind of squads. And who should turn up as a detective inspector on not, my squad? Not this bloke. Yeah. Same bloke. Oh, Same bloke. Bloody, bloody hell. Who could so have, honestly? Starts. Yeah, so he starts. Like the first day he starts. So I think I've had enough. So I pull my chair back and I said, you, outside. Outside now. So, so you're both you're both DIs at this yeah, point. Yeah, both DIs. Right. So you outside. So he goes in the corridor. So I'm, I'm on my tiptoes. I put my finger up his nose. And I said, you just try it, sunshine. You just try Because I'm gay. And he was going on about, what's your girlfriend? She's a Leslie. Usual old crap. Yeah. And so I said to him, I put my finger up his nose. I said, you just try. You just try. Any more of your nonsense. I'll be down the commander's office like a ferry to the drain pipe. Do you get it, mate? And he said... Mm. All right, it says you're all right. It says you get no trouble with me, and after that, he was all right. 
It's a bully. It's just a what bully. A, what a wanker. Yeah, there's plenty there's plenty of there's plenty of them, aren't there, unfortunately. And so um, we put him in prime suspect as Sergeant Otley. I told uh, him about him, and he became <laughs> Sergeant Otley in France, but I did get him back. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, oh, this is horrible, isn't it? I mean, these, there's a special place in hell, isn't there, sometimes yeah. for... But, um, so just on the sexuality thing, um, were you openly gay right from day one in the police? Or no, no, that... not no, not from Leicester. No, no, no. No, no, from Leicestershire. Uh, not in Leicestershire, definitely not. Uh, in, the, in the Mets, I was, because... You know what it's like. You've been there yourself, and people mm. say, "Oh, what do you do the weekend?" And then you got to lie and all of that type of thing. But I was mm. the only one that was out, female, mm. for years actually. And mm. um, on the flying squad lunches, I used to get, um, you know, like the lunches. <laughs> it was uh, like you get kind of dildos and mm. all sorts of sexual toys at my own shop. And then one of the flying squad guys, the driver, one day, he got, they went down to butcher shop in Bermondsey and they got this sheep's back, back of a sheep, you know, hanging in the butchers, you know, you yeah. Sheep. yeah, yeah, yeah. And they put a knife in it and they brought it to the lunch and they gave it to the flying squad uh, driver because he was being two faced. And I thought, thank God. Oh. I was glad I got my dildos. <laughs> you were quite, you were quite happy with your dildos, were quite you? Quite happy with my dildos. <laughs> oh, you know what? We played football, and I played on the Astro turf with them, and stuff. I've always played football when I was a kid and stuff. I was really good at football, and um, and they still tuck you like, they still tuck you like a blah, blah, blah. You know, yeah, yeah, but yeah, you yeah. had to. I don't mean you had to. I, there's a choice, isn't there? You either go with the flow or you don't go with the flow. Mm. And um, if you're a, a lone woman and you say, Do you know what? I've got to go home tonight because I'm going to, I don't know, yoga or somewhere, you never stand a chance. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a really, it's a really, it's a, I can't pretend that I really understand that stuff because I'm, I'm straight and, 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 you know, and I'm a bloke as well. So, uh, you, well, know, you don't you can, understand you can, sexuality. You, no, you can, I can, you know, I, I can't really. I, mean, I had Jay um, Warwick Saunders on another episode. He was the first openly gay black officer in the Met. He was a previous podcast guest. And that was really interesting talking to him because he got it, he got it for being black and gay, you know. And um, so, whilst, whilst I can sort of, empathize and sympathize with people i can't really understand what it's like you know to be in that situation because i've never been in it you know but i suppose if i had suppose if i had you know i don't know i'm trying to think of an equivalent i'm not sure that there is one but um but yeah i mean did, how did you sort of deal with it did you did you kind of laugh along with it or yeah, yeah. yeah and just sort of take it like yeah, yeah. you won't yeah. survive otherwise you wouldn't you just wouldn't survive it i mean the point is, I don't. Nobody chooses to be gay. It's not a choice. It's not a life mm. choice. Because if mm. it was a life choice back in the when I was growing up, would nobody choose it? Because it's crackers. You wouldn't choose. It's too hard. Mm. You know, it, it's a hard. Who wants to be different? Who wants that shame? Who and I had lots of shame about it. Who wants that? You know, cajoling and all of that. The way that society looks down at gay people. It, it's not a choice. I don't think. Mm. I, I mean, I. I know. You know, I'm no spring chicken. I've I've spoken to hundreds of gay women, and that and there's loads of women that all married, not all, but lots married and had children because 
they didn't feel that they had a choice. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they went with it. And then yeah. later on came out gay when they were about 40. Mm. Stuff like that. It was a common occurrence to people. I could have got married and just, what well, I wouldn't have done, but I could have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it happens the other way around as well, yeah. frequently, doesn't it? You know, with men living a lie and getting married and having a kid and then the kids and then they come out when they're in their forties or fifties and everybody acts surprised, don't they? And but um anyway, so getting back getting back to policing then, um obviously the these series prime suspect was very much based on uh, murder investigations, you know, investigations into sort of um, no suspect cat A type murders, wasn't it? You know, the sort of the child goes missing or the woman disappears off the street or whatever. I mean, because um, uh, you went to the fraud squad, but did you go back into that type of policing again? No, no. What happens is this. I was a, I was promoted to uh, detective inspector at West End Central. So, again, in contacting, we didn't have murder squads. Right. There were murder squads. There were area major teams. So right. there were eight areas. And then at, at the headquarters of each area, there'd be an area, uh, area uh, major investigation team. Yeah. But they weren't... They, so if there was... And they were very... Um, it was a small team. Yeah. If you had a murder at West End Central, I would be chosen as the, or one of the other DIs, because we had four DIs there. Mm -hmm. I would be chosen as the deputy SIO and the superintendent from the area major investigation team or the chief superintendent, detectives, they'd investigate it. Then they would bring in officers from all the stations around mm -hmm. and that would be your murder squad. So there were no dedicated murder squads as we know them today. Right, okay. So I did that loads yeah. of times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On fires, um, mainly. It seemed to be that I used to get all the fires without the wire, but I did. And, um, yeah. So um, so how did you then get uh, involved in the whole TV stuff then? Did that happen whilst you were still working, or was that something? No, 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 before that. So I was working as a DCI, Detective Chief Inspector at Hammersmith, and Linda LaPlante had noted that there was very few women on crime watch. So she spoke to an ex-police officer who said, you know, I'd like to write this, a male officer, about uh, a female DCI. And then that day, in those days, there were three. I was one of three. And he said, you need to speak to Jackie. So I get a call from him. Can he speak to Linda LaPlante? Yeah. So I went to see Linda. We arranged a date to see her. I went to her house and it all started from there. Right, but you see, you... the prime suspect one is loosely based on the Yorkshire Ripper. Right. And uh, so so obviously you hit it off with her on a personal yeah. level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and how did that work in terms of um, your uh, sort of advi advisory kind of role? And did you sort of literally sit with her and talk through mm -hmm. how this scenario might might work and uh, what happened was I went to uh, when I went to the house Linda had already written the script so she said if you read the script I'll make you a bit of supper so that's why I did a flick through the you know the scripts and everything so then she said, what do you think I said no I get where you're coming from but you're not a police officer and loads of things that are wrong with procedure and da -da 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 character so well less character but more procedure so then she yeah. said um later on um can you can you help me? Well, because she did have a male 
this guy that had asked me to help, he was the police advisor. And then she soon realised that he was an ex-cop, so he didn't have access to the police. I had access to the police. So we took her on the script to, you know, mortuary. We took her to, um, by then, by then, I'm a DCI, there's more formalised murder squad. So we took her to murder squad at Barnes. We took her to uh, CID. We took her to the forensic science. I took her to the forensic science unit at Lambeth so that she could speak to everybody. So you just facilitate mm. her research process. Right. Yeah, because it's certainly. Uh, I mean, I I think anyone who's anyone I've ever spoken to, I, mean, I thought it was brilliant, brilliant series. Anybody I've ever spoken to, absolutely loved it. And certainly, where I think it was particularly enjoyable for police, one of those rare things, one of those rare things that a, a police drama. That, that that was very close to the real world of policing, which is, as you know, a very rare thing, isn't it? Most of the stuff that's put out is just rubbish, isn't it? Um, in terms of police procedure, but what I think you can do with it, if you're clever enough, is to actually make the procedure dramatic as well. So that's the skill. Mm. But one of the skills, I think, is that you the, the drama should come first. That should always come first. It cannot be... Uh, you know, led down by police procedure, but you can introduce police procedure in certain elements of the drama that make it dramatic at the mm. same time. Mm. So mm. that that's always the skill, and the skill is to be flexible. The skill is to be creative, and the skill is to kind of think outside the box a bit, and then say to Linda, "That wouldn't happen necessarily, but you but you could do it this way." Right. And so you give her alternatives that would make it kind of work. Because you know the limitations of pace and everything else, yeah, so yeah, yeah, that yeah. you've got to be creative about it. Yeah. So obviously that that sort of was an introduction for you into that whole world, um, which you then obviously stayed very much involved with in your life after policing. So so when did you actually leave the organisation? Uh, so uh, I'll I tell you exactly. So I, I left in 1997. I did the I had a little smile at your book actually. Um, about the promotion so I um, I don't know if you remember the assessment census that we had in the Met for superintendent so um, I'm highly recommended and I get top marks in the assessments for everything I get fives and the fours mm. um, on two occasions and I get uh, for the maths psychometric maths test get two my mark is two <laughs> And uh, that knocks me out of the system. That Just, that fails me on a pesky yeah. mass test. Bearing in mind, we ran our own <laughs> budgets as a DCI. If you remember, in your mm. days in the Met or West Midlands, you ran your yeah, own budgets. Yeah. You never, never, never uh, problem with the budgets. Manage them. I know. Well, um, I, this is it. Like, I've talked about this quite a lot. Um, and so I, they knocked I, me out. I had a I had an article published in Policing Insight last week uh, where I, I I shared my top ten. Uh, top yeah. 10 list of things that could be done quite quickly to improve things in policing that wouldn't cost a lot of money. Um, and, and one of my kind of bugbears was the whole promotion process. I mean, I had to fight tooth and nail for every rank that I reached in the force. And um, I had so many set, but like, like so many of us with so many disappointments, so many setbacks. I mean, I mean, to be fair, some of the times I went for promotion, I just wasn't either ready for it or in the right mindset. I mean, I remember sitting my first chief inspectors board 
about two weeks after I'd left my ex-wife or something. So my head was shot and uh, and I ended up going in as a, it's quite funny actually. Yeah. I, I, I was given a mock, a mock board by my friend and old chief superintendent Clive and, and friend and uh, it was my superintendent at the time, Steve. And I was, I went in and, you know, you sort of delude yourself a little bit. Sometimes you, you come out and you think, oh, I think that went all right, you know. And uh, they call you back in, don't they? And uh, he, and I said, so how do you think it went? And I went, oh, I think, I think it went all right. Um, and they went, Ian, that was shit. That was absolutely shit. You were like a blithering idiot, um, talking complete bollocks. It's like it was like you were on speed or something. And <laughs> I was like, oh god, was it that bad? And I went, yeah, it was terrible. So right, tell you what, go ahead, go away, get get your head sorted out. Come back and we'll do it again tomorrow. Oh, God. That so, was good. so I went back the next day, did it all again, sent me out, same thing, came back in. And they said, Ian, I'm not even going to ask you how that went. That is the first time we both agreed that's the first time in our professional career with someone do a worse job second time right <laughs> <laughs> than they did the day before. So, you know what I mean? It, it, there are times genuinely when you've got to put your hand in your heart and say, this is not my time. I'm not ready for it. My head's not in the right place or whatever. Um, but what I would say is that the processes to get people promoted in the police are so weird um, that it's hardly surprising that you don't get the best candidates a lot of the time. The, the thing, I was listening to Rachel Johnson on the radio the other day and she was saying something about herself and she's, you know, she had a classics degree from Oxford or something and she's hopeless at maths. And uh, and the same thing, not that I have a classics degree, but I have two degrees. But the point being is that, it, you know, I was well supported and I knew that I'd make a very, really good superintendent and I'd been acting superintendent for Yonks under mm. Pace, you know, as a DCI mm. acting superintendent. And the mm. superintendent was on a course or away. I did it, it you know, and the, and the mass test twice, twice. Mm. And I nearly, you know, and that. So uh, then I had um, an injury on duty, Ian, and uh, that's caused me to have uh, a knee replacement. So um, I went. And yeah. um, I, I just feel that I feel really, really sad when I've been writing my book. I had to go through my appraisals and stuff, and I got my assessments from the assessment board. And just for it, really, really rocked my boat for about a week mm. when I was researching. And I just thought, how sad is that? A yeah. master, a master. You know, like I've been a career detective all my life. Yeah, and I a know. A master chucks you out the system, and some some people were. Could be experts on psychometric mass testing and, and never given evidence of the old Bailey. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I yeah. Oh, I know, I know. It's so it's so frustrating. And then simultaneously, you you see people who are massive bullshitters and um, ridiculed by most of the people that they work with or have worked with, um, sailing through these bloody promotion processes. And and everybody just sits with their head. You know what it's like, doesn't it? When the list comes out, you know, the next day or the next week or whatever of the people who have been successful in those processes. And I think the one that particularly is causes the greatest numbers of 
people groaning is the chief inspector to superintendent process yeah. i think you know that's when that's when you see grown men cry isn't it you know just thinking oh my god i can't believe that they've promoted that person you know but um so anyway on you, you mentioned your, you mentioned your book there um so let's talk about that a bit so so you've got a book which is just about to come out in fact by the time this podcast comes out we've agreed that this isn't going to come out until after That's the, right, book, yeah. the book is published. So your book is The Real Prime Suspect from the Beat to the Screen, My Life as a Female Detective. Is that, is yeah. that that's yeah. it? So um that presumably is an autobiographical uh book describing your career. Obviously, it'll sort of do what it says on the tin, I suppose. Um how long did it take you to, to write it? Uh well, the whole process from start to finish took 18 months. Right. Okay. Yeah. Did you enjoy writing? I did it with a ghostwriter. I did it. Okay. Yeah. Right. I did it with a ghostwriter, and um, I found you know that process is very very interesting. But you have to find uh, somebody that you trust, right? And feel that they, you know, learn to get your voice. I was lucky enough to have a ghostwriter that learned to get my voice. We didn't always necessarily agree on stuff um, yeah. e equally, so there was a lot of back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of research that had to be done and loads of talking to people to, you know, check my facts as well. Because mm. things like the Harris bombing that I was on or other investigations, you just need to make sure that my memory is okay. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a process where, uh, is it cathartic? In some ways it is, in some ways it isn't, you mm. know, because it's talked about addiction in there and nobody grows up with the ambition to be an alcoholic. So I'm quite open about my addiction issues mm. and the troublesome time at Western Central with some corrupt officers. That was quite, um, you know, it's, it's still quite, well, not quite, it's not so painful. I, I wouldn't say that, but mm. I think the feeling of, of going back and revisiting that feeling of what you were how you felt at the time because you have to go back and live in it live in that yeah. moment you, in order to write yeah. it yeah so um i feel that it's uh it, it's a better book for me to have a ghostwriter that's mm. my way of working i prefer mm. to bounce off mm. stuff. yeah it's an interesting point you make there about you know kind of willingly walking back into that mental sort of mindset that you were in during different stages of your life because I certainly I certainly find that whenever I wrote my book and and some of it do, does bring back very unhappy and uncomfortable memories and yeah. uh, that you just kind of want to forget really you know yeah. some of the toxic people that you had to work with um, during the course of your career um, you know some of the and this is said to me again and again and again in, in um, you know, people in the podcast and people sending me messages and emails and stuff. I get lots of really, you know, 99% of it is absolutely delightful, um, really supportive and help. But so many people say to me, it's not the horrible things that you have to do in policing that screw you up. It's working within the organization itself and so many of the dysfunctional elements of of the police organization i mean did you find that 
Yes, the public were easy compared to the institution. It is an institution as opposed to me. I always call it an institution. And that I, I found, uh, I'm not saying it's the same now because I'm not too sure that it is. Uh, it, you know, I think that the internally it's much more supportive. But I think in my day, it's a bit doggy, doggy dog. Mm. And I found working externally, the, that's what kept me going, was working with the public, working with the job, actually being a detective out there. And all this other stuff inside the politics or the dysfunctional characters that you come across and the toxic characters like Phil mm. and other people. I mean, he was the worst by, you know, he was the worst. Um, mm. But equally at Western Central, that was uh, a difficult experience and stuff. And uh, So what was going on there? What was, what was the next? Uh, Western like? Central, they were, um, there was a team, uh, a uniform team, sorry, a uniform relief. Uh, Western Central, uh, not all of them by any stretch of the imagination, but led by an inspector. And then uh, they were, I think, I'm reading between the lines, but I think what they were doing, they were having competitions as to who would be the most successful kind of team on night duty. And mm. um, a young acting sergeant woman um, suspected because of complaints were being made that and, and also her own experience that she went on a drugs raid, drugs were recovered and those drugs weren't entered into, you know, when you go on a raid, all drugs mm, mm. were entered into the, what was called the Book 66, they weren't entered in, they went missing. And then there were allegations also, I think they used the allegations as well, no, we never proved it. Mm. But other people were complaining that they'd had drugs planted on them at different times. And mm. she said there's too many people alleging it. Yeah. And uh, so she called me at home um, and the next day she said, are you on duty? I said, yeah. So she came to see me. She didn't tell me what it was on the phone. She said, can I have a word with you? Da, 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 da. And then, of course, it implodes and mm. it goes, uh, uh, they're suspended. CIB2 come in, suspend them, they're charged. And then uh the inspector goes to prison and it right. was just the whole reaction of some people um against you know what what we had done to take action yeah and so i got i'm not saying it's linked because i have no evidence of it mm. i don't have any mm. evidence yeah. of linkage but i had obscene pornographic lesbian magazines through my door twice before uh, the case went to the old bailey i had uh, my the, the woman officer and was a young probationer uh had she had um human excretia smeared all over her car door handles and um stuff so uh there was lots of incidents that appertaining yeah, around yeah, that yeah, really nasty stuff yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so uh, and also that so the main allegation was against me I was yeah. a lesbian and having an affair with a woman and uh, we concocted this story because mm. she received a bollocking from this inspector and it was revenge time so what we decided to do we would concoct the story <laughs> concoct the story of planting and concoct you know get mm. this bag of drugs disappeared and all of that stuff it was very very stressful Oh, God. So the organisation, more importantly, the organisation thinks that you are the betrayer. <laughs> you betrayed yeah. the organisation. 
by reporting yeah. it. That that's the worst thing. Yeah, it's horrible, isn't it? Um, so so obviously you've written the book, uh, and I obviously wish you the very best of that. And I'll I'll definitely get hold of a copy and, and read it um, when when it comes out. Um, and you've done a whole load of other stuff with uh, TV and uh, uh, dramas and what have you, haven't you? Yeah, well, the TV, um, the uh, being an advisor to uh, Linda Laplante was a great experience. And from that, I did loads of programmes for her, Time and Retribution. And I did most of the police programmes in the uh, 90s, early 2000s. I worked with the Bill programme for 13 years afterwards mm. and was the story consultant. Um, I had many, many opportunities come my way. So I did the Radio 4 programme um, about kind of women in blue. And then um, there were lots of yeah, people who wanted kind of mm. advice on the police dramas. Mm. And so mm. That, that, that kept me really busy. And then lately I've, I've um, I had my own series on TV called The Real Prime Suspect, which looked at a two series of looking at cases. It's the first time we're, they do it all the time now on TV, if you've noticed, but yeah. they had an ex-cop talking to cops yeah. or ex-cops. Like yeah. you're talking to me yeah, about yeah, yeah. Um, investigations and their investigations are very, very serious. Like, you know, Peter Tobin and Myra Hindley and yeah. the West. And revisiting that with the officers or the scientists, the pathologists, it was unbelievably fascinating. It was a real wow. privilege. To do wow, it. brilliant. And yeah. that was, I, you know, I'm, I was like 67 or something when they asked me to do that. And you think, sure, <laughs> you know, that is phenomenal. <laughs> Yeah, I went yeah. to university when I left the police, went to university twice. So I did a Master of Arts in Creative Writing and I did um, a Master of Science in Addiction Psychology. So I've been in recovery myself 30 years, nearly. Mm. In December, I'll be 30 years without a drink. So um, I used that MSc in Addiction Psychology to help men in prison with uh, addiction issues. I've been in the prison like 16 years now, so every week um, wow. I run groups and I also mentor men. I'm mentoring a double life at the minute who's now moved to other conditions. And um, yeah, it's a real privilege. So it's quite, it's very funny. There was one guy who was a blagger and we were walking down the corridor one day and he said to me, um, can I come to one of your groups, Jackie, or can you do some one-to-ones with me? I said, yes, about, you know, what? He said, well, you know, I'm, um, he was addicted to crime. Mm. And uh, it was very interesting working with him, but he would have said, he, and we were walking down the corridor, you know that, these little kind of, uh, these, what's the word, you know, if you just captured it, it would be really funny that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I was walking down the corridor and he was walking next to me and he said, well, who would have thought that, Jackie? Who would have thought, you know, me, you blagger, you blind squad? And we'd be walking down the corridor, you know, talking to each other and helping each other. I said, no, it's unbelievable. So it's yeah. been a real, real privilege to um, to listen to these men and, and also to reach them and for them to open up and talk yeah. about that stuff. Now, you know, People say you have to have prisons and you have to have people to lock people up and they, you know, they've done bad things. And I understand all of that process. You know, I'm a cop, you're a cop. We know that mm. there are people that have mm. to be locked up. There are also people who want to change themselves and yeah. want to get out of addiction. Now, if I can help them in my book, 
Because mm. I've been in, you know, I, 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 I'm in recovery myself and I'm an ex-cop, so I understand criminality. But, but thirdly, it's crime prevention, it's helping. Mm. You know, if you can prevent yeah. another victim. Yeah, 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 of course. It's yeah. going to be at the hands of them, then you're doing really good crime prevention work. And that's of course how you are. And that's one of my, you know, biggest um, issues really around the fail failures within the criminal I mean the criminal justice systems are a right mess at the moment isn't it I mean on Friday I'm interviewing I'm really looking forward to it actually I'm interviewing my brother because uh, my brother was in the Met he did about 15 years and uh, and then he left to become a barrister and he's actually now been a barrister for longer than he was a police officer and um and that and he describes that kind of um you know, weird. Well, I'll let him describe it probably on Friday. But that that weird situation of sitting in a cell uh, in the crime court, you know, speaking to a, a yeah. client, yeah. Um, and and that client doesn't know that he used to be a detective. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a weird one, isn't it? Um, and um, but but yeah, the the one of my biggest issues around the, the failures within the criminal justice system at the moment is that it's there's just no vision, is there? There's no vision around saying what are yeah. we trying to achieve here? What we're trying to achieve is to keep the public safe. Now, the way we do that is the police, you know, kind of investigate crime um, and uh, you know uh, put the case before the courts, and then that person, if found guilty, if it's serious enough, they go to prison. But then there needs to be an intensive program of education and some effort to rehabilitate them and give them positive options around putting their life in a different direction. Because at the moment, it just feels like we're just brutalising people in prison, which are just awash with drugs and mental health, people having a mental health crisis. And, And all you're doing is churning out another risk to the public whenever they come out because they're going to be even more damaged after coming out of prison than they were before going in you know no absolutely they do do some really good educational groups and things don't get me wrong and it is down to the individual who comes to the decision that they want to change and that's the work where it is about you know their behavior criminal behavior is a habit it's just like Mm. it's a habit it's it's one about you know their solution. It's about thinking, emotions, responding, etc. So we need to change the neural pathways in their brain in order to respond differently. And that's the kind of takes a lot of hard work to do that over a period of time. But that's the worth the effort. Now the problem is with prisons is it's not a vote catcher because as a, as a society we're quite punitive. Yeah. You listen to people. We're a punitive society, and uh, and the punishment is to deprive somebody of their liberty. The punishment is not to treat them punitively when they're in prison. Yeah, mm. kind of starve them to one meal a day. The yeah. punishment is a deprivation of liberty. Yeah. And what we have to do, in my opinion, is to give people hope and give people chances. If they don't want to take the chance, it's up to them. Yeah. That's, that's their choice, and yeah. they'll be in a revolving door. But if you offer the hope and the change. The people, mm. then in my my book, it's worth it. It's worth it. Yeah, I mean, a book I've I've plugged previous on a previous podcast. I'd really encourage, uh, obviously, encourage people to read your book, um, Jackie. Obviously, um, but another book which I'd really encourage people to read uh, would be um, a bit of a stretch, uh, the Diaries of a Prisoner by Chris Atkins. Bit of a stretch, and that and he basically is a, a was a kind of a white collar. He got caught up in some sort of. Sc- tax 
scam and uh, went to prison for his, for his troubles. And um, uh, no previous convictions, um, white collar criminal, I suppose. Um, but he describes his life in, I think it's Wandsworth prison. Oh, oh my God. I mean, it's just a real eye opener. It's an old uh, Victorian prison, and mm. therefore, you know, it, it is a Victorian prison, and that reflects. Yeah, you know, yeah. It was either that or the Scrubs. I can't remember one of. Oh, they're, the... they're both a bit. They're both yeah. Victorian prisons, aren't they? One with Scrubs, or you know, it's um, mm. it, it, it's very, very interesting when you get somebody like a white collar worker or anybody else for that matter, but um, you know that that does speak articulately about the prison system because. At the end of the day, Ian, they are powerless. Yeah. Every bit of our day that we have taken for granted, um, that they don't have that same power of freedom within themselves, you know, have to ask a prison officer for everything. Mm. Everything. They're all busy in a minute, mate. You know, come back in five minutes, mate. You know, all of that kind of stuff. The process is very, very, very slow. So I'll, I'll give you an example of one of them. So the lifer. That I'm dealing with as well. Uh, I'm saying that because he's moved to open conditions. So I, I drive to the open conditions. I take him out every month for the day mm. as part of his rehabilitation. And um, so he failed. Anyway, on one of the boards, uh, they said, yeah, that you have to go to open conditions. Now, to write that report and get in the through the system took six months. Mm. Six months. Six mm. months. So they're mm. giving him 12 months to achieve certain objectives. Mm. He hasn't even moved from the prison <laughs> for six months because it's taken six months for that parole report to get to him. I know. So he's already lost six months, of, you know, and, and, and it's just like, who cares? Yeah. Nobody cares. Nobody cares about the system. Yeah. You know, what's another month? What's another six months to a life but? And yeah. when you come to the end of the sentence, it, it, it means it absolutely means a lot. And you know, to get approved premises mm. You know, mm. somewhere that would take him in approved premises, well, he's not local. Well, they, who is he local to? He's been in prison for thirty years, for God's sake. You know, he's not local <laughs> to anyone. It's like it's like treacle. Yeah, I know. Like I know. I know. And and then you've got this, you know, situation now where. The whole thing's screwed, isn't it? You know, you've got all the courts have been closed again because of austerity. Uh, the barristers are all striking. They're doing one week on, one week off now, aren't they? And uh, my brother was saying that, you know, they're looking to potentially move to a proper full-on all-out strike. Um, probation services or norms or whatever you call them now, they seem to change the name every two minutes, don't they? Um, yeah, yeah. You know, they're strapped, to the, strapped for cash. Um, yeah, crime prosecution service strapped for cash. And the whole thing's screwed, isn't it? The whole thing, and so it's all. And very nobody wants. No, nobody wants to invest. That's the point in the criminal justice system. They don't want to invest. Um, mm. It's not a, as you say, it's not a vote. It's not. Well, not a vote you say it's not a vote catcher until people literally are so bloody terrified to come. You know, go out and go about their daily business because i mean we think we got the situation that you know this going this going full circle now back to detections again when you've got a situation where 96 percent of theft offenses reporting to the police result in no action being taken against anyone and um you know that's that that is not a good situation for a, a well-functioning society is it 
No, no. I was burgled recently, and it was a bleach burglary. And that, you know, they wear gloves, but they use bleach because they know DNA and all through the gloves. They, they, they smeared everywhere with bleach, and it, it all in my dressing table, into my clothes, into the carpet. And the police response was good, but they, uh, I'm not, I, I, you know, it was a good response. Mm. I'll tell you what it was. It was two police now uh, officers. Just all right. Police now that have uh, been in for three weeks. I had a tutor constable who was excellent, and they would, mm. he was teaching them, you know. And I had Sopko, you know. I, had, I I went through everything, but I mean, I knew that. But 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 did they know who you were? I mean, what, did you get an excellent service because they know that it's Jackie Moulton? I don't I don't know whether they did or whether they didn't. I think I mean definitely in the end they did because I've got um, play stuff everywhere. Yeah, no, not pleased to remember. I've got my flying squad. I have my little flying squad uh, thing. And um, yeah, no, they did know in the end. They did know in the end, to be fair. But that mm. didn't, I didn't find out. So I'm an ex police officer. I've been burgled. I didn't say that. Yeah. And well, I'm a neighborhood watch coordinator as well. I'm the only one that got burgled. But they were very good response. But I knew that they're not going to detect it because but they did the right things. They did the house to house. They did yeah. the CCTV. At least they bloody that. turned up, Jackie. Go yeah, on. no, I was very impressed with them. And yeah. I and I wrote a letter saying so to them. I sent an email saying well done to them because they, you know, they, they were very polite, very, very mm. interested, asked the right mm. questions. And the police tutor did a really good job. Yeah. And this is where I, I genuinely, I mean, there's no one... There's no one more supportive of policing than I am. And I it grieves me, it really grieves me to read all of these terrible, damaging headlines that seem to be popping up literally every bloody week at the moment. You know, uh, uh, and I and I, there's no one wants to see police officers, you know, that from the newest, um, you know, recruit through to someone who's just about to, you know, um, hand in their warrant card at the end of a long sale. Because no one wants to see them succeed more than I do. Um, but it, it does feel that there's so many things getting in the way at the moment of what oh, God, yeah. to do that, you know. But, uh, well, it's listen. interesting because I was listening to, uh, you know, um, GMP Chief Constable, is, is it Steve Watson? That's him, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I was listening to a podcast Mike Bartlett, you know, from Durham Police, and Durham yeah. Police have had some excellent, excellent yeah. results. I mean, I know it's a much smaller force, but nevertheless, mm. you apply the same principles if you can. And then Steve Watson going back to basics, mm. and, and that's what they need. You have to yeah. go back to the basics, and that does start with the uniform. It does start with, mm. um, I think you mentioned in your book, having a national uniform. I think that's quite a good idea. Mm. But at least you look like a police officer, uh, you know when you turn up and that and they'll say well what's that got to do with the delivery because it is a mindset yeah it's a yeah. mindset so when you leave the police station and you walk down the steps as a uniformed officer and you turn left or you turn right hopefully you've made a decision as to why you're turning left yeah. and why you're turning right that you have mm. you know an you're objective not in mind walk, yeah have an objective you're not randomly kind of walking around the streets and stuff and um and the thing that I I do I think I think one of the things that is worrying me a little bit is 
so it's a huge generalization. So forgive me for any of this listeners will say, is that old Doris going on again? But it is about the communication skills and do we communicate? Are our police officers communicating, talking, listening mm. to mm. you know to people, or do we go straight in, you know, with a bit of a baton and a, and a um laser and do we mm. all do that? Yeah. You kind of think, I know this is controversial and I wasn't there, so forgive mm. me for it, but to laser a 93-year-old one-legged man in a wheelchair with a bit of dementia. I know. It was appalling. It was appalling. I don't care. I have. I, I had a fallout, um, an online fallout with a few people on this. Not fallout, but a kind of a, a spat. Because I, I basically said that's a disgrace. I just can't see. Unless unless there was he was a 93-year-old ex-SAS veteran. He's uh, got one who, leg. I know, exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, I can't see any justifiable reason ever for doing that. Mm-hmm. And, oh, my God, you know, how have we got to that situation? So This you know, is the means about not, not, not being, this thing's about the, you know, the, the communications. It's a bit like, you know, um, you know, the girl that was stuck. She, she called to the school by a teacher, girl Q. Um, mm. What have you done? Well, we've. We've searched her bag. We've searched this. There is no drugs found. I said, thank you very much. I'm away. Goodbye. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Move away. You've done it. That's it. Thank you. You've done that. Yeah. You've yeah. done that. Have you informed her, her parent, etc.? Thank you for calling us. No action. Yeah, I know. It's just a massive, a massive absence of common, no drugs sense, found. common sense, isn't it? No, no drugs found. I mean. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It. yeah, no, it's a very odd one. But um, listen, Jackie, um, it's probably on that cheery note. Of, oh, no, we, of, must, we uh, have to be careful with Girl Q because I don't know what the, you know, the, the we have to be careful, don't we? Yeah, um, yeah, we well, some of the, some of the, some, yeah, yeah, some of the, some of the stuff, some of the stuff that's been coming out there recently again, a lot of, a lot of cops have been saying, hold on here, when, when they get searched, the media describe them as vulnerable children. But when they're murdering each other, you know, with knives, um, they are described as, you know, urban street gang members or something. So, yeah, anyway, we're not going to... kind of cannabis for that girl. It wasn't anything else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what the police were called because of suspicion, suspicion of cannabis, no more. Yeah, so here's well, an email just popped in uh, from my life, you see, because it's allowed a mobile phone now. And... Um, you know, in open conditions, you have to lock it up when you go back in. But it's got a mobile phone, and he messaged me, you know, on a regular basis. So it's it's good to keep in touch. That is good. Yeah, we have to have stability. Listen, I I'm so grateful to you for giving up your time. Um, I'm really, I'd really, it'd be lovely to stay in touch. You know, yeah, to sure. some to, to some degree. Don't worry, I'm not going to start stalking you. No, um, no, 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 no. But, but I uh, think we are. I've read your book, and I do agree with with. Um, you know your uh, commentary within that book. Mm. Um, I, 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 yeah. I definitely. Um, it's nice to. Um, it's nice that I think. I think most people do. I mean, I was shitting myself before that. You know, on publication day, I literally was shitting myself. I thought, oh my god, I'm going to get so much shit here from so many people. I'm going to be getting shittograms from from ex-chief constables and the home secretary is probably going to have my house under surveillance. He's going to be tasking MI5 to tap my phones. You know what I mean? Um, none of that has happened. None of it. It's all been super supportive. So, Very supportive. You had a lot of publicity about it. And also the great title, you know, TJF, you know, that's know. generations. But equally, <laughs> you actually say, as I do in my book, 
Mm. We're both saying the same. It was funny because my wife, um, she's brilliant. And we, you know, she is super supportive about what I'm doing. Um, but even she, when I was writing the book, she'd go, what are you writing? What are you writing now? What are you writing now? You know, I'd be sat there because you know what it's like. You, you get th- you get an idea and you think, oh, well, I've got to get that done. I've got to get yeah. that done. So you'd be like tapping away on the laptop in the evening or whatever. Um, and you need to be kind of in the, I mean, I wrote my book um, myself. So it, you need to be in the right mental frame to do stuff sometimes. And um, so, yeah, she'd get really, <laughs> she'd get really annoyed with me. But um, but now she's really proud. You know, she's really proud of of what's happening. And you know, I'm I've really carved out a, a name for myself nationally as the oh, you, have. you know one of the voices you of have. policing. You know, no, you have absolutely. You're a very very strong voice and a very intelligent voice. That's mm. the point. You know, and that's what we need: balanced, intelligent voices that are out there and you know not long been out of the job. I think mm. you know. Yeah. The yeah. difficulty for me, I mean, mine's a different era and, and mm. it's in northern context, and I think it has to be out there for historical reasons. Yeah. Um, and the police isn't like that anymore, but in some ways it is. When you read your book, you know, you just think, blimey. So I think, um, mm. you know, John Sutherland is a great voice, you're a great voice, and mm. uh, my friend, you know, Dave Thomas, he does a lot on uh, mindfulness and mental well being and stuff. Mm. He's done a great interview, if you're interested in, with Mike Barton from right. uh, from Durham Police. Very, very good interview stuff. So yeah. would you join the police again tomorrow? Yes, I would. Yeah, I would as well. And I think if one of my kids said that we'd, they want to do that, I think my daughter, she's 10, she's my wife. I'm typical. I always said that I never felt like a proper detective until I got divorced, you know. But... Um... <laughs> <laughs> So I've got I've got kids second time round, haven't I? Typical typical old Bill, and um, so my young my youngest daughter, my eldest daughter's thirty, and my youngest daughter's ten, um, and um, I think she's got a bit of a hankering to be a police officer because she keeps on saying it, and she wants to be a firearms officer, and then she keeps, and I think she, I actually think she might because she's she's I, you know I think I could imagine her going down that route in life rather than becoming a I don't know. A, you know, an accountant or a banker or something like that. Do you do any work with the police chiefs at all? or Not at the moment. I mean, I'm fully in- involved. My main thing at the moment is I'm working with four other guys to set up a technology company. Um, so we've developed a, uh, a load of tools to help um, police investigate crime using uh, involving any sort of technology because Part of the that reason, was your last job, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Part, part of the reason why detection rates are so low is that cops don't have the tools to conduct even the simplest investigations involving the internet or, you know, at the moment you've only got a very small number of people within forces, digital media investigators, DMIs, who, who are overwhelmed and can, and can therefore only service kind of the most serious end of criminality. The, the murders and the sort of uh, you know the high the high harm crimes what we've done is we've developed a, a platform of tools that are very simple to use that um you could give to uniform pcs you could give them to volume crime investigators um and they're very powerful tools but the, you know in terms of the way they work they're very clever but to use them they're very simple um our solution um could actually be given to every force in the country at very low cost and it would enable the Met to work 
on an investigation jointly with Durham or with yeah. um, Merseyside or so it's, it's a, all about cost though isn't it yeah well ours is very 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 good value actually I mean but I won't bore you with all of the pricing structures because I'll send you to sleep but, but have, um, they, um, have forces shown an interest yeah 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 we've got a lot of interest it's very early days yet but um we'll, okay then my darling nice to so, see you yeah I mean it was absolutely lovely talking to you I really look forward to I'll add you to the list of people to go oh we want an alcohol-free beer <laughs> the yours will be alcohol-free mine will be full fat no you can't trust you can't you can't have alcohol-free if you're not if it's anything's like sparking elderflower is my little drink I love it Okay. You know what? I wouldn't. Alcohol gives me nothing. I'd give my my life is far richer without it. <laughs> my friend with alcohol, a friend of mine, who's the day who went to Lancashire this weekend, he's on alcohol free because the doctors told him to watch his weight or something. Yeah. But, yeah alcohol free. Yeah, that might be the way forward. This is my darling. Right. It's been Take an care. absolute absolute joy, and uh, love to catch up with you face to face sometime. Yeah, very sure. Soon. Nice to meet you, in and you well take... done for your book and what you're doing now. It's great. Bless stuff. you. Take care. Good luck with yours. Take care. Bye 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 bye. Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his feet. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs>